Wipe Our Podcast this week. Film stars don't die in Liverpool. No, they they live and appear in the Empire Podcast instead. That's right, we have the legendary Annette Benning on the podcast this week, plus the Oscar-winning screenwriter from Manchester by the Sea, Kenneth Lonergan, here to talk about Howard's End. Ooh, or misses. Uh, all that and more on the movie podcast that's up to its elbows in Marmalade. Lovely Marmalade. Uh, hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning and a really cool breeze on my neck, which is quite disconcerting. That's Hopefully me. That. Sorry. Is that you? <laughs> How we put you over there? <laughs> Maybe it's Keanu Reeves. I can throw my breath. Cool breeze uh, across the mountains. Cool breeze in the podcast booth. That could be it. That could be it. He's behind you right now. I don't want to look in case he is, but I also don't want to look in case he isn't. Yeah. It's a bit of a conundrum. It's a toughie. It is a toughie. A kianundrum. Uh Anyway, you've heard one of the colleagues of Such Lethal Cunning. Uh, it is, of course, our geek queen. Our geek geek queen, Helen O'Hara. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good, good, good. You know, I've, I've, I haven't done a supernatural thing for you for the last two weeks. I know, and I appreciate it. Yeah. Do you wonder why that may be? Is it because you've run out of the very limited store of knowledge you have about the supernatural <laughs> and also the stuff you've made up about it? Everything I know about supernatural comes from what Chris has said, which is probably a bad thing. Yeah. What do you know about it? This is Nick Descendant, by the way, our Jurassic World Hello. co-star. Don't look him in the eyes, everybody. Never look me in the eyes. My vision is based on eye contact. <laughs> sure. My um, vision is based on smell. Yeah. Smell well, it with your eyes. Who's excited That's about true. the Jurassic World 2 trailer, which I feel is going to drop soon? Uh, yeah, do you think it's going to be dropping soon? I imagine some of the big cr- trailers are going to be start dropping this side of Christmas. Yeah. yeah. I would imagine the John Lewis advert is is one. <laughs> the Marks and Spencer, have you seen the Marks and Spencer Christmas have, advert this year? Yeah. It is virtually an advert for Paddington 2. That is no bad thing, no. as has far it, as I'm concerned. Okay. Has it not been quite controversial? It's been controversial because a, a bunch of fuckwits uh, think that uh, Paddington... The, the, so if you haven't seen the Marks and Spencer Christmas advert... It's not controversial because of anything Paddington does. No, Paddington yeah. is okay. fine. He's, Paddington he's, is a delight. He hasn't you, gone R-rated. No, he hasn't. Creepy Paddington has not returned. <laughs> Do you know why it's controversial, Nick? I don't, know. Okay, so I'll tell you. So the Paddington, uh, the Marks and Spencer Christmas advert this year features Paddington, voiced either by Ben Whishaw himself or by someone who sounds alarmingly like Ben Whishaw, and... He interrupts a burglar on Christmas night, Christmas Eve, and uh, thinks mistakes him for Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. And so takes him through Windsor Gardens, putting presents back and bringing warmth and love and joy into people's lives and turning the burglar completely around because he sees what it is to give people joy when they unwrap the presents under the tree. And so at the end of the uh, advert, Paddington hugs, says, oh, Thank you, Mister Claus, to the uh, to the to the burglar, and the burglar goes, "Thank you, Paddington," uh, and hugs him, and it's a lovely, heartwarming moment. And literally, this ninety-second advert nearly made me cry. It's it's <laughs> I don't know where Paddington is just hitting me. It's my sweet spot right now. But people on the internet, but some people think that the burglar says. Fuck you, Paddington. <laughs> at, the, at the end of what? the advert. Come on. Have not read this? Wow. Wow. <laughs> so some people think, because it's quite garbled, because he's hugging him and he goes, thank you, Paddington. And I don't know any circumstances under which, thank you, Paddington, sounds like, fuck you, Paddington, <laughs> which is clearly what they think he says. Also, like, let, come on, people. Context, okay? I Context know. matters. And I think we need to, in this day and age, not be complete twits. <laughs> 
it's just a hard stare for all those people. Super hard right? stare. It's just not the done thing. Aunt Lucy would be so upset with these people. I mean, if you'd said there was a controversy about sort of, you know, commercialising Paddington or something like that, I would have been like, I mean, okay, I really enjoyed the ad, but I see it. Yeah, I can see that but, as well. But, but this, that's just stupid. Yeah. Like, what? in what universe do they think that Marks and Sparks is going to put fuck you in their Christmas ad? Like, I, like who honestly for a second <laughs> believes that is plausible? Like, it just, yeah. it makes no sense. Yeah, yeah, it's unlikely to get red banned, I'd say, the, the, <laughs> the Christmas advert, but I don't know. How do we get on to this? It's hard to say. Trailers. 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 So you think... Uh, yeah, I just think uh, we'll get some trailers soon for some summer 2018 biggies, and I'm hoping uh, Jurassic World 2... We'll be there. Okay, I mean, that's all very well, but Justice, not Justice League, the other one, Avengers Infinity War. Yep. Come on. Yep. Seriously, come that's on. That's the one you're most looking forward to. Yeah, 100%. Does and it have dinosaurs not, in it? If it's not on on the front of Star Wars, uh-huh. I'm going to wait until the end of the film and then I'm going to riot. I think it will be. I think it will be. And I think they were holding off on releasing that, that trailer because I think the trailer is by and large going to be the Comic-Con footage. And... I think they were holding off and releasing that because of, um, you know, not everyone has seen Thor Ragnarok, so I'm going to tiptoe very carefully around this, but because of, I would say, a modification of the appearance of one of the Avengers. Well, we've all seen his haircut, Chris. Yes. I'm talking about his big hammer, Helen. Good Lord. I know. Very personal. As you know. Wouldn't expect that in the trailer either. It's a subject on which I'd like to expound. So hang on. So Thanos is getting a new haircut. <laughs> what else? Yeah. It's okay. like, and someone's getting a big hammer. It's like DIY SOS, but with superheroes. It's going to be... So you've seen this footage. You were you yeah. were in Hall H. I, I, I haven't seen it. I was, Have you not? I was near Hall H, but not, not inside it. Um, oh, man. And it was amazing. It was fantastic. Yeah, but... What's your favourite bit? Or is it a spoiler? It's, it's in my sweet spot, isn't it? I think my favourite bit was, um, I, I won't give away too many spoilers, if you want to hear us discuss some of what happens in that footage, it is in the Thor Ragnarok spoiler special, which is out right now uh, for your uh, for your ears entertainment. But one of my favourite moments was watching it in Hall H, and every time a new character appeared, like 6,500 people just lost their minds. Like Literally every time a character just appeared in screen. And there's quite a lot of characters, like it's more than yeah. Twitter, right? I'll be honest, it got a little annoying, because this was like a two and a half minute, three minute thing, and people were just screaming every time a minor character appeared. But one of my favourite moments, there's there's a cool bit with Doctor Strange interacting with Star-Lord in an actionary kind of way, uh, which is which was cool. But it was literally just uh, Steve Rogers stepping out of the shadows into the light. And Metaphor. That's, that's all he does, yeah. And revealing that Cap in this movie has dark hair and a beard because he's been on the run for two years, presumably. And... People just lost their minds. It was you're just applauding facial hair at this point. Yeah. I, I, I'm a hundred percent with that. I've been in that room and seen people applaud fonts. <laughs> so I've seen Kevin Feige come out and he's revealing the what the font for you know Black Panther was. Yeah. People just applaud the font he wildly. He, but he doesn't go. Please, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Helvetica. He doesn't do that. It's not. Oh, it's a way better font than that. <laughs> Nobody would applaud Helvetica. Well, no, it's a documentary. Yeah. There's a whole documentary on Helvetica. Is there? Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe it is worth some light, uh, scattered applause. But um... <laughs> I think Marvel's at the point now where they could reveal the title of a movie in Comic Sans and get away with it. 
dingbats. <laughs> I mean, Thor Ragnarok wasn't that far off, so... It know, wasn't, was it? It could happen. <laughs> they, could, they could give it a go. Like, you know, just Feige goes, I knocked it up myself, lads, last night, got a little drunk, if I'm honest with you, and this is what it's going to be. And it's like, Avengers! Yeah. Uh, I still think there's going to be a font movie. Eventually, Hollywood will really run out of ideas. We've had an emoji movie. There will be a font movie. <laughs> I, I'm and, hoping um, that the emoji movie killed the chances of us seeing a font movie. Didn't they do yeah. well? I just, I hope not. Yeah. I, I had to sit through it and review uh, it, and it's. I'm still scarred a little. I think it did. I think it did. <sighs> but yeah, I think you're right. Avengers is going to drop for uh, Christmas. We're going to see uh, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. What yep. are the biggies next year? What are the other ones very quickly that we haven't... We haven't even got on the question yet. Well, <laughs> Black Panther we've already done, and gosh, um, I mean Han Solo, right? Han Solo, yeah, that's going to be interesting. Solo. That's got to be with Star Wars, right? It's got to be. You'd think. Um, um, what are the other big ones? What's, what's the Warner Brothers Rampage? <laughs> I don't know why that's coming skyscraper. To my head. Fant- skyscraper. Is there a Fantastic Beasts at the end of like, next year? End of next year, there right? There is. There is a Fantastic Beasts. Is there another uh, Justice League type movie next year? We uh, haven't got Wonder Woman until Aquaman. 2019. Aquaman. Aquaman. I wonder. I mean, yeah, I think we'll see some Aquaman soonish. I think you're right. I think they'll want to. Oh yeah, next week they'll want to capitalize on the the enormous bounce of popularity the character is bound to experience after Justice League. There's also X Men Dark Phoenix. There's loads of stuff. There's New Mutants. Stuff. New Mutants. Uh, we had that trailer already, though. So forget I said that. Um, Deadpool yeah, two, Star Wars Episode it's nine, all about Jurassic which... World, Fallen Kingdom, and. Um, yeah, although although Jay Bona, I, I, are you in it on the week? I'm not in it. Okay, so what you're saying in it indicates that that we know of a teaser trailer that's going to focus entirely on Edmund. <laughs> just me stepping out of the darkness into the light, <laughs> and nobody applauding. Um, yeah, no, I, I tweeted a, a poster for a Tom Selleck '80s movie on the weekend, and Jay Bona replied with the poster for a different '80s Tom Selleck um, movie, which is of no interest to anyone, but shows that you know. So he follows you on Twitter. Does. Oh, that's, oh, wow. all I wanted, that's all I wanted to say. <laughs> so this, oh, hang on a second. So this whole segment <laughs> was just a pretense <laughs> so you could reveal that you were followed on Twitter by Juan Antonio Bayona. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. That's been exposed. Anyone famous follow you this week, Helen? Anyone? Not that I'm aware of, no, yeah? sorry. No Des O'Connor? Well, who is? I don't think he still follows me. Should I check? No. Des O'Connor? Des O'Connor. Follows you on Twitter? Mm. Anyway. Let's move on. We have a question. We have a question. And this question will allow us to cover off one of the big news stories of the week as well. Okay. Uh, and it is a question from at Michael Axe, at MW Axe. And he says, in light of the revelations about Kevin Spacey and others, does it affect the way you see their prior work, e.g. usual suspects, even though those films represent many other people's work too mm. And um, the Kevin Spacey story is ongoing and developing and... You know, obviously, a couple of weeks ago we said we would. We th- I thought we'd be talking about the fallout of the Harvey Weinstein thing for a few weeks yet, and I don't think it's going to show any sl- signs of slowing down. And the big revelation this week in regards to the Kevin Spacey accusations and allegations that are flying around uh, is that he has been cut out of com- completely cut out of Ridley Scott's All the Money in the World, in which he was going to star as uh, J. Paul Getty, and uh, he's going to be replaced by Christopher Plummer. The other kicker for this is, of course, that the movie is coming out on the 22nd of December. And so Ridley Scott, the fastest man in the West, is going to have to do yeah. it again. And he's brought back his principal cast and his creatives, including <laughs> Mark Wahlberg and Michelle Williams. And he's going to shoot the scenes this of Spacey un- Shot again. This is unbelievable, yeah. by the way. Yeah, this is because he decided this apparently late last night. Uh, Sony got a call from Ridley Scott saying, I'm 
bringing in Christopher Plummer to yeah, do this. Yeah, these are the reports. <laughs> but yeah. you, I mean, yeah. even if you look at the trailer, there's a shot of Kevin Spacey in all, all his, his makeup in Egypt. You know, this isn't just the scenes that were done in a room. He's shot around the place. Yeah. How the hell are they going to do this? Well, I mean, if they're going to do it, it's going to be Ridley Scott because he is the fastest draw in the West. Yes. I mean, you know, I think we've all been on his on set of his films mm-hmm. and you see how quickly he moves from one setup to the next. Like, he is phenomenal. Mm. Um, I wonder how big a role it was because I got the impression that he was the sort of the figure in the background that everyone else is revolving around, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's always on screen. So I feel like he's a sort of Judy Dench in uh, Shakespeare in Love kind of a role. Nine to ten days, apparently. Nine to ten days, exactly. So very showy, very impressive, very important to the movie, but not actually a huge amount of screen time. Mm-hmm. And also in the reports have said that a lot of those scenes are him on his own on the screen, like either on the phone or in his office or whatever else. Mm-hmm. So that, again, makes it logistically possible. Yep. The other rumour is that uh, Ridley Scott is is actually, you know, making hay while the sun shines in a way. That's a terrible analogy. Making hay while it rains? I don't know. But he he kind of wanted, a, some reports have said, Christopher Plummer in the first place. Yes. And was encouraged to go for the bigger name of Kevin Spacey. And so, you know, in, in some ways is potentially not that upset about it. Hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. I'd like it if they just keep cutting to like Skype footage of Christopher Plummer <laughs> in his house, <laughs> just literally doing the whole performance over Skype. I think it's set in the seventies, so that would be a, that would be a surprise. Yeah, but uh, I hope I hope they don't do the prosthetics with Plummer that they did with Spacey. I don't think that you need to have the actor look like J. Paul Getty. I don't think. It's it's I don't think it's it's essential to this. Just have Christopher Plummer be Christopher Plummer. Uh it was the it was the, the latest development regarding that film this week. Uh it was pulled by TriStar from the AFI Fest where I think it was going to open AFI Fest uh either this week or next week. And it was pulled uh with a statement saying that they didn't think it was appropriate. I'm paraphrasing here slightly, but they didn't think it was appropriate to open the fest in the in the wake of the of the of the revelations. But that they were going to hold fast with the 22nd of December release date. And this echoes actually the question from Michael Axe. The hold fast for the release date out of respect for the job done on the, the movie by 800 other yeah, people yeah. and not Kevin Spacey. So they didn't want Kevin Spacey to become the story. The story. And, and I think, I mean, this is a film that is, you know, being released during awards season. Um, obviously, somebody at least thinks it's a, an awards friendly movie, one would imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if and if it comes out, it, and the only story is Kevin Spacey stars in this, and Kevin Spacey is still the subject of all of these uh, accusations mm-hmm. ongoing, um, that kills its any chances. So, yeah. from a purely mercenary, purely you know awards point of view, it's an entirely sensible decision. From a from a, an artistic one, I guess, if you want people to talk about your film and not you know a, a mm. co-star's life. Yes. Um, it, this is the only possible response, yes. I guess. Yes. Um, but yeah, there are 800 people involved in all of these other films, you know, and this is, this is the, I guess, where we come back to the question. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people in Hollywood throughout history, as in every other industry and every other art form, have been terrible people. Mm-hmm. And, and we've always had this discussion, and it's, a, it's always a, a balancing act between the artist and the art, and ha- where do you draw the line, and how do you separate them? And what are you comfortable sort of endorsing in your artist by consuming their art? Mm-hmm. And 
There is no right answer, I don't no, think. And I think it always has to be a personal decision and a personal balancing act between what you're kind of okay with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, I genuinely think it's a visceral feeling. Like, I, I, I think that... I think the hardest of all his films to watch is going to be the one he won the Oscar for. It's American Beauty because uh, not only in that is mm-hmm. he, you know, mm-hmm. lusting after a 15-year-old the whole way through, but uh, without spoiling anything, mm-hmm. the, the whole finale of the movie relates again to what he's accused of. And it is... We're just going to have to step back from that one, I think, for a little while. But Or certainly I am. Mm-hmm. But, you know, your mileage may vary. Absolutely. I, I, Nick, I don't know how, if you have any thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to change um, change your perception of... You know, maybe maybe the movies where he's the bad guy and, and <laughs> doesn't get away with it will be more will be all right. But yeah, the movies where you're meant to be rooting for him, I, I don't know. I mean, it's all kind of. I think they're relatively few and far between, and they're not the ones I would want to revisit. Pay it forward or K-Packs or he generally is a duplicitous, slimy guy. I guess know? usual suspects. He's the guy with the dark secret. If that's not yeah. giving anything away, um, <laughs> yes. Um, I think um, most people know the, the twist to Usual Suspects, but now I, I would hope it's interesting. I haven't put this to the I haven't put this to the test yet with Spacey. I mean, uh, over the weekend, because everything you, you look at Twitter and it's Spacey, 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 mm-hmm. Spacey, and she started to think about, oh, okay, you start to think about the films that you know I love that he is in. Usual Suspects, The Negotiator, Seven, Swimming with Sharks, and Gary Glenn Ross, one of my favourite films of all time. Baby yeah. Driver, just Baby Driver, Baby Driver, John just, Bernthal. Just, yeah. I don't know if you saw, but he just basically said that. Um, got interviewed by someone and said that Spacey was uh, a dick on the set of Baby Driver and, and being oh, nasty really? to people, yeah. John Berthold's not a man who, who holds back, I think, in interviews. So, yeah. I, I... He's a Virgo. For me, this has always been a, a tricky one. How do you separate the artist from the art? And I won't really know until I really put that, that Kevin Spacey film on. Glengarry Glen Ross is a film... That I'm constantly drawn back to. It's on in the West End at the moment with a with a different cast, and so it's been it's been on my mind. And I think do I do I put that on, and how will I feel about watching Kevin Spacey? I don't think it will change my reaction to the film too much. But again, as Helen said, your mileage may vary. Um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a, it's a tough one. But I I would say that bear in mind as well as Helen said that you know this is the work of. On certain films, 100 different people, 150 different people, yeah. 300 pe- people, whatever it is. And um, maybe think of them as well when you're approaching that film or that play or that book or that song, whatever it is. Uh, not a definitive answer, but I don't think this is a, a topic on which it can be a definitive answer. But if you do want to have your question read out in the Empire podcast, you can do so via a number of methods. Uh, we're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast as Michael Axe did, and we will see it. Uh, we're on Facebook as well as Empire Magazine, and you can email us podcast at empireonline.com. Time now for our first guest this week, and she is an acting legend who's been nominated for several Oscars uh, yet to win. She's been in the likes of uh, 20th Century Women, which is a fantastic film. If you haven't seen that already, do check it out. The Kids Are All Right, uh, The Grifters, Open Range, American Beauty, uh, Bugsy, Love Affair. She is, of course, the great Annette Benning, uh, completing our one-two set of the Benning household, the Benning Beatty household. Uh, if you haven't listened to the Warren Beatty uh, interview special from la- from earlier this year, do check it out. It's a lot of fun. She will soon be seen as the film star Gloria Graham in Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool opposite Jamie Bell, who was on last week's podcast. Look at that. Ah. It's all happening. It's all happening. Uh, she came into London recently and she talked to John Nugent. So do enjoy this interview. Annette Benning. 
We are delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by Annette Benning. How are you? Hi, great. Thank you. Great to be here. Great. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. So we are here to talk about film stars Don't Die in Liverpool, in which you play um, Gloria Graham, this real-life classic Hollywood um, film star. First of all, I just wanted to ask, what sort of research did you do? I imagine you just had a stack of classic DVDs and you just locked yourself away for a couple of weeks and just immersed yourself in... Yeah, that was great fun. Um, She made some great movies. Mm. The Big Heat, uh, In a Lonely Place, uh, The Bad and the Beautiful, Oklahoma. Those are sort of her classics. But then she also made some other more B-movies that are really fun as well. Mm. Um, A little more cheesy, some of them. Mm. But no, watching her and watching her evolve and her her work on film was really a thrill. I think In the Lonely Place is my favorite, which she made with Nick Ray, who she had married. Um, And that one with Humphrey Bogart takes place in Hollywood. It's a sort of movie story about movie people Mm. and really good. And she's terrific in it. Um, I think Humphrey Bogart was very good to her. Um, Anyway, so, yeah, that was a joy. It was mm. a joy to watch her. I could stay. I have to go back and watch them again. I haven't, yeah. haven't in a while. But no, I'm a great fan. And and in a lonely place has that that amazing line from Bogart about I I I was born when I kissed her and I, yes. I died when I she left me. That's right. And which sort of reflects what this film is about because it is like this sort of fleeting affair with this unlikely um, Liverpudlian. Uh, Peter Turner, played by Jamie Bell. Yes, the real Peter Turner actually cameos in this film. He um, does. Did you did you turn to him for advice? Did you get any stories from him? Absolutely, Peter Turner, who wrote the book that it's based on, right. was sort of the center of all of our inspiration because. Mm. First of all, he's such a lovely man, and when you meet him, when I met him, I should just say I understood why Gloria had this extraordinary relationship with him, which I think was a very deep and meaningful one for both of them. Mm. I have a feeling she'd never been with a man like Peter Turner. I think she had been with a lot of very talented, I mean, Nick Ray was an incredibly talented, tempestuous, fascinating, bright, complicated guy. Cy Howard, who was her third husband, was known as being really funny and a great rock and tour and but I think there was a lot of partying going on a lot of drinking and a lot of I mean I think it was all pretty tempestuous with everyone um when it came to Peter at that point in her life I think it was an entirely new kind of relationship he's a very nurturing man and he it, the experience for him was incredibly intense mm. and especially with what happened at the end and when it all sort of ended he was left just sort of didn't know what to do with himself and that's when he wrote this book which is a really tasteful kind of impressionistic book about this thing that happened to him out of the blue yeah i was fascinated by your performance because it's it's interesting playing someone who is a real life figure and we know what they look like and what they sound like I mean how did you approach it was it an impression or was it more sort of a sense of the person rather than like a direct impression I I tried to do this the 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 latter I tried to just get a sense of her I didn't want to do really an impression Um, also we don't really know I mean at that point in her life I mean there's some film of her and uh, there's some she did some TV shows and some like a 
kind of bad horror movie in the 70s, but we don't really know exactly how she was. So I, I just sort of culled from what I had seen and and did what what felt like the right thing for me. I didn't want to do an impression, but just to give a sort of sense of who she was. Mm. And that was my take anyway. Yeah. But you do get a sense, you get these little uh, sort of hints, these fragments of her sort of femme fatale past, you know. Yeah. I mean, she's got that very, you you, you give her a bit of a pout and she has quite a high-pitched voice. And yeah. uh, I love, there's a couple of lines, the, the line, I like habits, especially the bad ones, you know, <laughs> just such a sort of beautiful film noir line. Um, did it, did it feel sort of like she's she's a character from another time? You know, she's 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 sort of a person out of time. Yeah, in a way. Although, of course, she never was that woman in any of those films. That mm. was just a sort of an illusion. Um, she became known for those movies. And one of the things that, that I was really shocked by in watching a lot of the, the old films was how many times she got beaten up in movies it was just mm. so common then God, yeah. and because she was quote the bad girl you know she was the femme fatale then it was very much accepted that that's how women could be treated even in mm. the stories and I, I was sort of shocked in movie after movie she's getting hit and beaten up and treated badly um, so I mean I wish gosh I'd give anything to have just been able to sit down and have a chat with her see what her life was really like but but the movie's very much Peter's movie, and mm. it's from his point of view, and it's really that um, that emotional intensity that Jamie Bell brings to it that I think really um, he he was and Peter is preoccupied with her in a very deep way. Whatever happened between them deeply affected him in his life, and mm. he was able to write about it in a way that I could relate to. So then it just becomes a love story like like any other in its uniqueness. It mm. just happened to have been between these two people. Yeah. Did you manage to speak to anyone who had met her? I, I, I read that uh, Barbara Broccoli, who produced the film, uh, had met Gloria and yes. Peter when they right, were together. Peter and, Glo and Barbara were friends. Right. And in fact, Barbara was around them when they were together That's and amazing. met her. And she said, oh, yeah, it just seemed completely normal when you were around them. Like you didn't think, oh, she's older, she, he's yeah. younger. She just said it felt felt very, very natural. And so then she, of course, would have known Peter when he was writing the book. Because right. he, he wrote it. He said it just sort of poured out of him after after uh, the relationship was over. And it was very difficult for him. I think it's difficult for him to this day. Yeah. Kind of like those, I mean, maybe each of us has had a relationship like that where it always sort of holds a place inside of you that nothing ever, mm. nothing else ever really touches. Mm. It's not that you don't go on and fall in love with other people, but just the nature of that relationship. Sometimes those things do change us forever. Mm. Yeah. It felt to me like one of the big themes of this film is how um, acting and, and fame can be sort of simultaneously uh, intoxicating and destructive. Yes. Um, and, and obviously you are of someone who's, you know, has experienced acting in fame. Is that this, a similar relationship you've had with it, would you say? Um, I think that I've I've tried to uh, negotiate it in a way that I didn't lose my sanity. Yeah. But yeah, it is it's tricky. And then some of it's really fantastic, you know, and mm. pleasant. And when people stop and tell me that they've seen something or something meant something to them, or their mother, or their mm. kid, or their husband... 
That's a great feeling. Mm. I, I really like that. So I, I've, I've had a lot of the, the gifts of it that I really do appreciate, being able to do things that I love, being mm. able to pass on things that don't mean anything to me, that kind of thing. That all means very much. You do lose a certain amount of anonymity, but I, I kind of feel like in the way that I live my life, I'm able to go around and do the things that I want to do pretty easily. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the first time we see you on screen, uh, you're doing vocal exercises. Mm. Is this is this a recognized? I'm not an actor. Is this a recognized acting technique? I mean, is this something that yes. you do? Yes, and I, I I know the other day I was with a couple of actors who we were discussing uh, the movie at a film festival, and they were saying, "Oh yeah, I, I remember that. I remember doing that." <laughs> Anybody who's gone to acting school yeah. has had to do those silly vocal exercises. Yeah. Absolutely. Do, do you have it's a, a favorite, rite of passage? Do you have a favorite tongue twister? Um, let's see. A tutor who tutored a flute tried to tutor two tutors to toot. See, I can't even do it. Very good. No, that's impressive. My goodness. A tutor who tutored Oh, no, no. Don't make me do it again. <laughs> wow. Okay. No, that, I'm, I'm genuinely impressed. <laughs> so it, it's shot on location, uh, a lot of this film in, in London and in Liverpool. Uh, did, have you ever been to Liverpool before? Was this your first time? Uh, we took the train up before we were starting, just okay. as, a, as a sort of field trip. We went up and we went to the house where Peter had lived. Right. We knocked on the door. Another family lives there now. And a young woman let us in. She was very sweet. We walked around. We went to the kitchen. Looks exactly like the one in the movie. <laughs> that sort of, you know, you walk downstairs to yeah. go into it. And, the um, and then everywhere. there's, um, we went upstairs, we went into the room where Gloria was when they were taking wow. care of her. So, and walked around the city and it's just, it's a great place and has mm. a very different vibe than London. Mm. Uh, and Peter and his family and the way they loved Gloria and accepted Gloria and Gloria knew them quite well. They went and visited there early in their relationship. So that's all very, very much a part of the whole story and the context and also the eccentricity mm. of the story which yeah. is in the title <laughs> yeah yeah did you have any trouble with uh, the Liverpudlian accents well see I don't do it so I don't <laughs> oh, you mean understanding yeah, it? yeah. oh no yeah. I love it no yeah. I had no trouble understanding it and I just I loved it and, and that's part of the whole experience of going there and being there it was really a joy yeah and there is the, the film has such a sort of in the early parts at least it has that sort of fizz and flirtation about your the, mm. you know the early part of your relationship um i love that first scene where you first meet jamie bell's character and you're disco dancing around the living room <laughs> and obviously this is jamie bell who who played you know the boy dancer from billy elliott yeah. um t t tell me about that scene i mean what was it like to film so fun you hold your own against him thank very well. you Thank you. No, it was so fun. I could have done it all day. Yeah. Um, no, we had a ball doing that. It was it was great, and I think it's very important in the movie and that yeah. joy and that abandon and the craziness of it and how they met and how they connected and all of that. Yeah, thank you. I, I love the scene. <laughs> I, I love doing it. It was just it was pure fun. Was it was it choreographed or did you just sort of let loose? No, let we didn't loose? choreograph it. No, and Jamie's yeah. such a good dancer. I mean, yeah. There was a woman there who gave us, reminded us of a few of the classic sure. Saturday Night Fever dance moves, yeah, but yeah. you can see Jamie doesn't need any help. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all, no. Um, so 
you've been acting in movies now for I mean I, it's not polite to say how long perhaps but uh but you mind you, it's it's been a while let's yeah. say um and you've built up such an impressive uh, body of work you know Thank there's you. been so many interesting films across your career Thanks. I just wanted to ask like how do you approach each new project like what what makes you say yes to your agent what what is it that the writing is everything and if the writing catches my eye and also just sort of preoccupies me and definitely the director because hmm. film is the director's medium you're really there to serve them and to try to get their you know what's in their head out it's a collaboration definitely but in the end you know you walk away and they they edit the film so that for me is actually a great pleasure and it's kind of an adventure because each time people approach things differently so I like that. I like mm. that that um, journey uh, of trying to sort of figure out the way in which we're going to do because each project is so different, mm. and that uh, that search I find more and more interesting. It makes me want to continue, um, and I'm lucky. I only have to do things I really love and mm. find things that, and with people, it's all about the people and the mm. connections and being very connected to other people is a, is a deeply satisfying thing. Um, it, it makes life worth living and it makes the projects worth doing when you're really connected people, to people you respect mm. and that teach you something and that you learn from. And um, so that really interests me, especially about film acting. I, mm. I love that. It took me a long time to really feel like a legitimate film actor. Because really? I'd done so many plays, and that was really how I understood acting, mm. was being up on my feet and going th from the beginning of the story through the end every time you do it, and sitting down quietly and doing two-minute scenes for a while just felt really alien to mm. me and funny. And now I, I really love it, and I understand that the, the luxury the camera brings. Yeah, that's interesting. I was going to ask, um, you know, what's, if anything, has changed um, since you first started out, if, if you approach things differently or if, uh, you know, you, you look at things in a different way. There's a kind of, there's a place of not knowing you want to get to. There's a place where mm. your mind is, you're not really thinking about anything. Um, and for those of us with minds that chatter all the time, I don't know if yours does, but mine certainly does. You know, you, you do the research, you do the thinking and mm. the listening to the music, and in this case, watching movies, talking to people. But then in the moment, you want to hopefully be just in, like we are right now, mm. in the moment with another person in the same room, listening and, and taking from them. So that process is fascinating to me. And then trying to surprise oneself. Mm. It's easier to plan, and there's something in the psyche which encourages one to plan because then in some mistaken way you feel safer. But what you want to try to find is surprise. So when the camera's rolling, something happens that maybe nobody anticipated. Right. And that's fun to try to find. Mm. You don't always get there, but you, you try. And when you have good people around you, and it, it, it's worth trying to trying to find that and just to, to maybe then someday somebody's in a movie theater and they're watching something and they're moved so do you do you like feeling like you you're not sure what's going to happen next? yes do you like that sort of element of danger you try almost? to cultivate that yeah because of course you you do know to a degree the yeah. cameras are there they've been set up the lighting set up for yeah. a certain place so the, it, it's illogical in a way but yeah. in fact um if you can 
yeah, maybe something might happen that nobody knew about or nobody thought about that would be of value. And mm. and in films, that can be a small detail and that can really help uh, kind of pique an interest and make something happen that the camera can see. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm almost out of time. I just wanted to ask quickly, um, are you aware you're on a T-shirt? What? Have you heard about this? No. I'm going to show you a photo. I'm afraid I don't have one in person. There's a thing called Girls on Tops, and it's literally just your name oh, in big black letters. I'm very flattered. And all the film hipsters are wearing them now. Oh, this, is, this is like the, the latest thrilled. craze. I'm thrilled. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> just to let you know. I'm really flattered. Yeah. Thank so you. if you if you mix within the uh, cool young film journalist circles, then you will see that sort of T-shirt. <laughs> okay, cool. Thank <laughs> you. And on that note, uh, Annette Benning, thank you so thank much you. for your time. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Thank Thank you. Thanks. Okay, so that was Annette Benning, and it's now time to talk about this week's movie news. What has been happening apart from the stuff that we have already talked about? Well, I think the big um, movie story is about Universal's uh, monsters. Uh, So obviously, The Mummy earlier this year was announced as the first of a sort of shared universe of Universal monsters, uh, with the plans for The Invisible Man, um, Bride of Frankenstein, and so on, kind of coming down the line behind it. Um, Those appear to have been, at the very least, shelved, um, let's say, um, because uh, Alex Kurtzman and Chris Morgan, who were sort of creatively in charge of the whole thing, have apparently left, and... uh, it's kind of going nowhere. No, it's not hmm. clear that it will definitely die. Uh, one mm-hmm. possible option is uh, handing it handing it over to somebody else, somebody like Jason Bloom was suggested, um, or finding someone else to kind of step in and run it all. They say, we've learned many lessons throughout the creative uh, process on Dark Universe so far, and we are viewing these titles as filmmaker-driven vehicles, each with their own distinct vision. We're not rushing to meet a release date, and we'll move forward with these films when we feel they are the best versions of themselves. So, who knows? Hmm. This is interesting. Just give it to Guillermo del Toro. Just give it to him. I mean, that seems awesome. Hand him the keys to the kingdom. He kind of just did Creature from the Black Lagoon, in a way. Yeah? Yeah. Um, But I would have loved to have seen his version of that one. Yeah, I I just think they, they... With The Mummy, they just made it needlessly convoluted, I thought. Yeah. It, was, it, it could have been very simple. We've talked. I think you were talking ages ago on the podcast, Chris, about speculating whether Tom Cruise was going to be playing Van Helsing. And I think if he had just played Van Helsing mm. and gone up against The Mummy, that yeah. would have been a more fun film, I think. Just make it a straightforward adventure film rather than trying to get themselves tangled I th- in. I think they just um, front-loaded the mythology too much. Yeah, like, you know... Yeah. Make your first film and then build your universe. Don't sort of run before you can walk. And to have, yeah. name the start of another first film in a shared universe. Um, yeah, to- they didn't do a great job of building up the mythology. They, they just show you the whole of Prodigium, everything about it, mm. straight away. Um, they show you, you know, Russell Crowe turning into <laughs> the monster str- within the first hour of the film. They, just they called a big organization Prodigium. I mean, <laughs> it, you're not off to a great start, are you? Um, I, I think this whole thing was... Uh, uh, misbegotten from the start I I think that they had perhaps put the wrong people in charge uh, they certainly were approaching it from the wrong angle I don't think this should have been a series of 100 million dollar plus blockbusters uh, the idea that Jason Bloom and Blumhouse might be involved is great because there is a guy who can get uh, gold for the most part out of 5 and 10 million dollar budgets and that's what these should be they should be low down not gritty, that's the wrong word, but they should be low-budget horror films with the emphasis on actually being scary. Well, I don't know. I'm not against a big-budget horror movie. 
I just, but that wasn't what this was. I just don't think they work. I, I you know, maybe you, you know, you'll instantly prove me wrong by by citing five recent examples. But <laughs> well, I, no, think, I think once you American get over a werewolf certain, in Paris, <laughs> <laughs> I think once you get over a certain budget level, horror doesn't work. Horror has to have a certain. Uh, I think the budget has to force some ingenuity f- from the filmmaker. For it's one yours thing. not technically a big budget horror film. Um, and weren't the original were Universal horrors? Essentially, I don't know if they were big, big budget. I mean, you look at you look at Dracula. Certainly, the first Dracula with Bela Lugosi, and it's largely but those were one set being reused. I mean, it is, but at the same time, like it was fairly big budget. I think by the standards of the day, a lot of those films, and you got big names yeah. increasingly, or, or certainly yeah. the stars became big names, perhaps. Yeah. Um, so it's not quite the Bloomhouse. No, know. but what I mean is, avoid the Mike Nichols Wolf treatment, avoid the Wolfman treatment. Basically, anything that's got a werewolf in it, Van Helsing, you know, which could have been a great schlock uh, masterpiece was a disaster piece uh, or as Simon Crook came up with uh, in the next issue of Empire Master Piss which I thought was pretty funny <laughs> okay. I just I just don't think I think budget I think the horror for the most part has to have filmmakers bumping their head against the ceiling of budget to force themselves to come up with some sort of solutions to things and also I, I don't know big budget in horror movies is usually con- conflated from, with, with, for me with uh, CG and mm. CG in horror films for me doesn't always work. No, I agree. Yeah, that's that. fair. I agree. CG is not particularly scary. Neither are zombie security guards named Alan. It was Alan. Don't you diss Alan? He is my character of the year. <laughs> he is amazing. <laughs> I think that might have been one of the one of the many missteps that the mummy took. He died so that Tom Cruise could kind of semi live. I don't. I didn't understand the movie. I'll be honest with you. Uh, hey, if you want to check out the spoiler special with director Alex Kurtzman, who has now left the dark universe, then you can do so. It's also on your podcast listening device. What else has been happening? Um, I think we've all dreamed, haven't we, of seeing the Lord of the Rings on the screen? I mean, I think, you know, J- I don't know if you know this book, but <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien wrote it. It's a very big, sprawling book. So naturally, its its home would seem to be TV. And uh, and thus, um, Amazon is apparently considering making a TV adaptation of it. This is exciting because I think we're going to get Tom Bombadil. <laughs> I think we might get a bottle episode with Tom Bombadil. Just, bo- just, just trying to just open a bottle. Tom Bombadil. <laughs> Tom Bombadil opening bottles. I mean, we could see. We could finally visit the Barrow Downs. We could finally see Absolutely. the scourging of the Shire, which actually, narratively, I have a whole problem with. Uh, you know, yeah. I guess. How many breakfasts are we going to get? It's not going to be just two. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. I want to see a Olympus bread origin episode. I want to see where it comes from. I want to see. I, I want to have an Amazon. I want to see a Lord of the Rings cookery. Cookery. <laughs> cookery show like MasterChef. Yeah. Right but with Lembus bread. Well, I actually have, have seen the scripts to this and I can tell you that the first half of the first season is entirely party planning. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, and, that's, and, and then, you know, when, the, when they break for Christmas, um, you know, we, we have, the, we have the, the big party. I'm up um, this. This is so seasons, great. Seasons three through ten yeah. are just walking. Listen, I'm okay with this. This sounds to me like most of Channel 4's afternoon scheduling already. I mean, you could have four in a bed with the four hobbits and, you know, not in a sex way, obviously. That would you know, be wrong. It would, but also, would so it? right. I don't know. I think, of, I, th- I don't know. This uh, this sounds like interesting news uh, for anybody who thought that the Lord of the Rings movies yeah. were too short. <laughs> it's going to be like so. Autumn Watch, but just in Mirkwood. <laughs> Bill Oddy looking. <laughs> who thought, that the, never mind. Um, I just think this is interesting because apparently 
you know, Amazon wants their own Game of Thrones, and that's kind of where this is coming from. <laughs> really? But, I mean, speaking as a nerd, yeah. there are so many epic fantasy series is out there with multiple books that haven't already been brilliantly filmed and won all of the Oscars for all of the people of New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And I'm just not sure. I know it has a lot of name recognition, but, you know, you don't need that to begin with. Game of Thrones was known to us nerds, but it was not known outside it before it started. Um, So what you do is you get something else and you do it well. Um, Wheel of Time is still up for grabs, for goodness Mm -hmm. sake. The Belgariad, if you want to, you know, something that the kids can watch. There are so many options, not all of which involve Terry Goodkind, which would be yeah. dreadful. Um, <laughs> there's got to be options. But, Silmarillion, if you want to stick with Tolkien, there's other versions, yeah. exactly. I, I, I don't want to judge this before it happens. Um, but that's doing You anyway. never know, but I'm going to, because I, I think this is a terrible idea. I just <laughs> think it, there are so many ways you can get this wrong, as I think the animated version showed. Um, I don't know, instead of Giant Eagle... They could have Amazon drones to bring them to. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that's, that's the thing they could do. Is it Mount Doom? Um, I'm not up my own talking anymore. Yes, it is. I yeah, just think go. the films, I think, were so definitive mm-hmm. in every area and they got it so right. And The Hobbit yeah. showed, you know, even the same exact people trying to pull it off. It was like lightning. I think it worked yeah. once. They couldn't even recreate it. I could well be wrong, but I think this is a bad idea. <laughs> I, I agree 100% with that. I, yeah. I could also be wrong but I think they shouldn't do it and should do something else that's completely different. I, I'm, yeah. I'm but also has dragons. Oh, Temerara. Do Temerara. Do Temerara. I've been talking yeah, about this for years. I think Peter Jackson yeah. has the rights. I think so he, he, did, he certainly ago. did, yeah. I think there are things that really work well on the, sh- on the small screen. I mean, Reach would work really well on the small screen, but I'm not sure that Lord of the Rings, it's, t- you know, Game of Thrones is obviously massive, but it just feels to me like you're going up against three of the most beloved films of all time. Why would you even do that? Yeah. Because you, you, the effects are never going to live up to what they were. Oh, well, no, the, some of the effects haven't aged that well. So there, you know, there's moments that they could definitely do better. Oh, there's the um, the bit where Orlando Bloom's surfing on that. Yeah. Olive, is it Oliphant he's surfing on? Oliphant, Tim, Timothy yeah. Oliphant, and he doesn't look happy oh. about it. and he's like, Which is weird, because Timothy Oliphant is you know, <laughs> the best. You'd surf on him, wouldn't you, Helen? <laughs> That's a bit personal. <laughs> I actually think the, the Lord of the Rings effects have generally... Dated. Sorry, we're going off on a tangent, no, no. but they gen- generally dated They're, better than even the Hobbit because I think yeah. they, they, they are he, better he, than the he Hobbit. threw in so many yeah. practical things. I know a lot of it's digital, yeah. but um, no, like, you're right. It, it, it has um, generally. But I agree, well. there are some some ropey uh, glass surfing shots. Anything else, real quick? Uh, Steven Soderbergh, while we're on TV, um, has come up with something. Have you guys seen the trailer for Mosaic? This is what he talked about on our interview special, which you can hear on your podcast listening device. Okay. Thanks, Chris. Okay, so go listen to that. Go listen to that and go watch the trailer. Um, I haven't seen it myself, and I also haven't seen the trailer for Steven Spielberg's The Post, which stars Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. Those two losers were late, <laughs> honestly. Yeah, and if, yeah, it's, it, that looks awesome, and I can't wait to see it. Um, just very quickly mention, we we talked, I think, last week only, about mm-hmm. Julianne Moore signing up to My Life on the Road, where she would play Gloria Steinem. Kerry Mulligan uh, is reuniting with her Mudbound director, Dee Reese. Uh, for a film called An Uncivil War, where she will play Gloria Steinem. So uh, <laughs> so that's exciting. Who would have thought we'd have dueling Gloria Steinem films? That is that is a thing that is happening. And The Boys um, has been greenlit. 
by Amazon, talking yes. about Amazon, um, which is um, the Garth Ennis comic book. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's been a long time since um, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg have kind of been talking about doing it. I remember ages ago there was talking them trying to do it as a film with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, but mm-hmm. uh, it seems to be happening now as a TV show, which is exciting, and it's basically about uh, a group of vigilantes who have to take down corrupt superheroes. So when superheroes go bad, these cool. guys come after them. And um, yeah, I'm excited to see that. Yeah, that's a really good idea. And they've also cast um, The Boy for Shazam, which I think oh, we're all yes. excited about. Yes. You remember, it's part of the DC. EU. Yes. yes. Uh, so we talk about this last week? Asher no. Angel will be playing Billy Batson, who will transform into Captain Marvel. No, not that one. Uh, when he sh- says Shazam. This is the one where it's going to get confusing. And Quicksilver's yeah. in this. They should have a third Quicksilver just to be in this movie. Just to really confuse people. Um, we're not talking about the, the, the rumours that um, Disney had held talks to purchase 21st Century Fox and 20th Century Fox, which of course would have thrown the cat amongst the pigeons for all kinds of reasons. The X-Men among um, the Avengers. Huh. Yeah, but because at the moment the talks aren't successfully, they, they were held, but they're not going ahead. So yeah. until there's something concrete for us to talk about, I think we'll deal with it then. Sure. Um, but there there we go. So that is the movie news. Don't forget the new issue of Empire is also on sale right now with Reservoir Dogs on the cover. New, new upcoming movie. Do check it out. And, and it's time now for our next guest. And the Lord of the Rings thing is interesting because, of course, that is a TV show that is that has a huge movie in its past. And this week on BBC One, you will be able to see a new four-part adaptation of E.M. Forster's novel Howard's End, starring Hayley Atwell. Peggy Carter, we love you. We love you. We love you, Peggy Carter. Uh, uh, Matthew McFadden and uh, Tracy Ullman, of all people. And of course, there was a huge Oscar-winning movie with Emma Thompson and Anthony Hopkins in the past. Uh, but this new version, uh, which is very good, I have seen it, it is written by Kenneth Lonergan. Now, Kenneth Lonergan, of course... It's recently won an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay from Manchester by the Sea. He is, of course, also the director behind You Can Count on Me and Margaret and the screenplay for Gangs of New York and Analyze This. He's basically one of the best screenwriters in the business. So when he puts his pen to something, you sit up and you take notice. He came out to the pub with last week and we sat down and we talked about his screenwriting technique, what attracts him to projects, Howard's End and all sorts of other stuff as well. Uh, I, thought it was, I thought it was pretty damn fascinating and I hope... <laughs> You will too. Here he is, Kenneth Lonergan. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the writer of the upcoming Howard's End miniseries and, of course, freshly minted Oscar winner, Kenneth Lonergan. How are you, sir? Very well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you. I'm not resting with jet lag in the way that you are, but... Oh, it's not too bad. It's not too bad? Good, good, good. Um, uh, we are in November, uh, Kenny. Uh, do you mind if I call you Kenny no, for the purposes of this? Uh, we're in November now, uh, which is the, the type of year that you may maybe start to take take a look back and take stock of the year that you've had. Uh, you've had a bit of a belter of a year, would you prefer to say? How would you rate your 2017? Well, you know, a lot happened, but um, <laughs> most of it most of it was all over by March, so, so it hasn't been quite as busy the second half. Most of twenty seven. There was twenty sixteen, seventeen. That was really the busy year. This, okay. So far, it's been a, it's been a bit more peaceful since March. Okay. So when you uh, when March uh, came and you had won the Oscar, what, what did you do? Did you kick back for a while, or were you still working on Howard's End, or, or what um, happened? A bit of both. Howard's End was pretty well underway by then. Um, I don't remember exactly when they were shooting, I, I, but uh, most of the script work was finished, 
uh, if not all of it. And I think there was some minor work to be done, and all the work was then being done by, by Hetty McDonald and Playground and the BBC. So I was, mm. to, I just sat back and watched and was happy <laughs> to let them get to it. Uh, do you visit the set a lot? Were you on no, set? No, I didn't. You know, I traveled a lot last year, and I, which I really enjoyed, but I, I think I was a bit burned out, so I didn't. And um, with some some family issues going on uh, at home, so I just wasn't able to come over and visit the set, which I very much wanted to do, though. Okay. I, they sent me rushes and uh, various versions of scenes as they came together, and uh, it looked very, I was very tempted to come over, but I just wasn't able to. So how did it uh, come into your life, Howard's End, this first? Because you you're the writer on it, you wrote all, all four episodes, mm-hmm. um, but you're not the showrunner, per se. No, I'm not at all. I just yeah. the, I'm just the writer on this. Uh, Colin Callender asked me if I was wanted to... He pitched the idea to me a few years ago, a couple of years ago, I guess, mm-hmm. and uh, I had to think about it a lot, but I always think about whatever. I'm, I, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not the impulsive type. So I thought about it a bit, and we talked about it quite a bit, and uh, then I ended up writing it. What was it? What was it appealed to you? It's just such a good story. It's uh, the period is is very interesting to me. I'm very interested in history, and I've always wanted to write a period piece. And here was a, this great novel, which is so rich, not just in the period, but in the private life of the characters and the mm-hmm. in the, it, it, the novels. Very thoroughly investigates both the. Uh, so many levels the social conditions the different the three different classes that are represented in the film also the emotional lives of the characters and the characters are so unusual and so unusually rich that uh it was quite a pleasure to dramatize uh and there's plenty to to latch on to and get interested in so uh you mentioned there that uh, your work as a playwright and is that what you you saw yourself doing when you were growing up and you wanted to become a writer was it playwright first and the movies happen along, not accidentally, but as a result of that, as a as a byproduct of that, in a way. Yeah, kind of. I went to uh, my high school had a very good uh, drama program and a very talented drama teacher, and I got interested in the theater in ninth and tenth grade, fourteen, fifteen years old. And uh, I just wanted to be a playwright until I was in my thirties, and then I finally wrote a film. Not. I, I then went into screenwriting as a way to make a living so that I could support my playwriting, which, mm-hmm. which wasn't making a living. And um, then I got interested in directing as a way to protect the script at first because having worked as a professional screenwriter, I knew that there's no protection for a script and, and, and you have to treat your screenwriting work with m- m- much less personal attachment than your playwriting work. And I, when I realized it was possible to direct a small, low-budget movie, uh, I wrote my first script as a screenwriter the same way I would a, a, as a playwright with, mm-hmm. with love and with a feeling of attachment to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I always try to do a good job for other people, but it's a different it's a different discipline. Of course. So have you been through that that, that horror show of having your work, your your, your film work, uh, picked apart by producers and rewritten I, by others? I have not because, it. I mean, I have had scripts picked apart and rewritten by others, but it wasn't a horror because... Those scripts, I you weren't expect, attached to. That's what I expected, and that's yeah. what I signed up for. And so, you know, uh, it, it's common knowledge what happens to scripts in Hollywood, and 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 they they pay you quite well for the privilege of of rewriting you completely and throwing it out and having it never be made or whatever <laughs> other things might happen to it. Um, so, in a way, it was very good training because I knew what would happen to a script I cared about if I didn't protect it in some way. Yeah. So each of the three films that I've done 
protecting the script was never an issue because I made sure that without without the script being completely without my power over the script being complete that I, I, I wasn't interested in going forward with the project and that was clearly understood with each of the three sets of producers that I've worked with and uh, the financiers as well and, and I've never had a serious or disturbing discussion about the script on either of the, any of the three films that I've mm. done. Okay, interesting. Does does it work the other way? Because I know that you've you've done script doctor work in the past. Mm-hmm. You've you've uh, uh, contributed to some films uncredited. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a as a writer, does, how does that make you feel when you are rewriting someone else? Do you, do you look at, approach it from the, the, the same viewpoint almost? Well, no. I mean, see, I would never rewrite someone. Uh, I would never rewrite someone's film if they were in creative control of it. I would mm-hmm. never rewrite someone's play. I would never be so presumptuous. But a screenplay is is a bought and sold commodity that's up for grabs for anyone to rewrite and anyone who sells a screenplay to a studio like myself knows what he or she is getting into mm-hmm. and uh, you know I don't fault any of the writers who were hired to rewrite my material uh, I don't like the system I think it's wasteful I don't think it leads to particularly good results um, I don't like the disrespect with which scripts are treated mm-hmm. in commercial uh, uh, film production I think it's wrong but um, maybe this is morally <laughs> reprehensible, but but it's but that's that's the sea we all swim in, and I'm yeah. I I, I, I if someone sold their script to a studio and they kick them off the script and hire me to rewrite them, I have no mm-hmm. problem doing it. It's been done to me. I've done it to others, but I feel it's the producers and the financiers who are genuinely responsible. Mm. Well, maybe that's. Maybe that's a really horrible attitude <laughs> to have, but I you have to make a living somehow. No, absolutely. Um, and of course, say, sorry. One exception was Gangs of New York, which was mm. a which was a film. I was the fourth of four writers, and, and uh, brought on by Scorsese, who was the creative force behind the whole thing. And I didn't mm. feel like I was. Um, that was different. That was not a committee. That was a, a, a genius controlling I, things. And was that was that a page one rewrite for you, or how did that work? No, it was very very. Uh, very specific, uh, very specifically targeted. They wanted some work on some of the characters. They wanted work on the dialogue, uh, um, and uh, or they, meaning Marty Scorsese, did. Mm-hmm. And then I also did some structural work that I thought was needed, and they were happy to to accept it. And, and a lot of what I did stayed in the film, and then they adjusted some of it. But that was that was a wonderful experience. It wasn't, wasn't the normal Hollywood. Uh, Free for all. Were you the writer on set? Per, I was. I, I guess. Yeah. I, I got there a couple of weeks before they started shooting. They were in a quite desperate straits. Hussein Amini, who's an uncredited writer on the on the film, did a really good job mm-hmm. before me, but he couldn't. He had to go on and do a film of his own. So I was brought on two weeks two weeks ahead of the beginning of the shoot, and I rewrote the script about two weeks ahead of the schedule for three months. And and everyone else was freaking out and incredibly <laughs> anxious, and I was. And Chinichita rewriting for Martin Scorsese and Daniel Day Lewis and Leonardo DiCaprio having a <laughs> Was it Seed of the Pants type type stuff though, Kenny? Because uh, I spoke to a director, I won't name name him, but uh, recently on a on a fairly big movie, and I said, "How's it going?" They were shooting for a couple of months by this point, and he said, yeah, "It's going well. We've uh, we've we've got the beginning and we've got the end. <laughs> Not so sure about the middle, but we'll get there." This well, was a bit more structured. They had a the the story was laid out quite well, uh, and um, the work that had been done was quite good. And then they'd lost their way a bit because I think there were too many cooks in the kitchen. Mm. And um, so my work was 
pretty controlled. Um, I had to. I was. I was. I. I cut about ten or twenty pages out of the script. I changed around some of the characters. I tried to. The script was quite episodic that I got, and I tried to link the the events together a bit, make them force each other dramatically a bit more, and I tried to put in some humor. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, and you have to accomplish. But but I think it was it was very. For some reason, my memory of it is not that it was. Even though it was such a tight schedule. Um, it was a pretty methodical process. I would, we, I would have a meeting with Marty. Then I would have a meeting with the actor who was in the scene. That we'd all talk about, it, talk it through. Mm-hmm. Then I would rewrite the scene, show it to Marty first. Once he and I were both happy, once he was happy, really. I mean, and I was usually happy if he was sure. happy. Then we'd show it to the actors involved, get their input. If I had to go back and rewrite again, we'd go through the same thing until everyone was happy. But it was, it was a pretty good system, and it and it clipped along fairly well. And um, Everyone seemed happy. Indeed. I have to ask you, because uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is obviously about to deprive us of his talents, unless, of course, he changes his mind. Um, uh, what was that experience like, working working with him and writing that amazing uh, character? I right? love him. I loved him. He was so nice to me. He would come visit me in my little cubicle and his, with his mustache and his costume and his New York <laughs> accent, and he was so gentle and kind, and we, we became quite friendly. And uh, I loved working, and he would... There's, if he didn't like something, he'd be very serious and concerned, and then say that this part was difficult. And if he liked something, he my m- one of the greatest compliments I ever got was there was a, lo- a little speech that I wrote, and he came into my office and he said, "This is poetry, Kenny," and I never dreamt of writing poetry, and I don't know that I think it was poetry, but the Daniel Day Lewis telling you your dialogue is poetry is pretty, pretty, pretty nifty. That's amazing. Um, so I, I, I absolutely loved working with him. Was it a? Uh, can you remember the scene in question? Yes, he's, descri- he's describing how he murdered Leonardo Cap. He's describing his murder of of, of Liam Neeson. Okay, uh, he's sitting. Uh, it's a scene where he's sitting wrapped in an American the American flag. flag. Yeah, and he's just, oh, he's actually describing how he plucks out his own eye. He said, "I plucked out my own eye and sent it to him wrapped in blue paper, something like that," mm-hmm. which he quite liked. Uh, again, I didn't call it poetry. He did. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds poetic to me, uh, and uh, I just have to ask one last thing about him. I mean, obviously he has this this air of mystique around him, and you say he came with his New York accent. Uh, I'm just intrigued by the, the how far he goes as a method actor, and and how that affects his relationship with a writer. Are you talking to Dan- Daniel Day Lewis? Are you talking to Bill the Butcher when he comes well, in? Well, everybody called him Bill. I called him Daniel, and he didn't mind. I, mm-hmm. I felt a little silly calling him Bill. Um, yeah. But, but I don't think it was done in quite the way that, that people think. I mean, he'd come on the set and Marty would go, Bill! You know, it was sort of a... I, I never got the feeling like I hadn't met Daniel Day-Lewis. He would, he, I think, you know, when you're playing... A lot of actors have trouble just switching it on when the camera's on. So you know, they, 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 will, they will be in the mood of the part, or if they're doing an accent, they'll do the accent during the day because... Uh, some they're all different, but it's whatever makes it comfortable for you to do the scene. So if it's comfortable for him to be that person all day long, and when so that there's not a huge shift when the camera starts rolling and when it stops rolling, if the camera jams or if they do it again, to just go back and forth. To, I, I can see how it would be difficult to toggle your personality on and off. Yeah, of course. Especially when you're playing such extreme types as he plays. I actually discussed this with him uh, at some length later on when we were having a, a drink together in New York. And when he's talk, talking about my left foot, he said he felt it would be very disrespectful. He spent a lot of time in the hospital with, with uh, people with cerebral palsy, and he said he felt it would be very disrespectful to hop in and out of the wheelchair 
when he was on the set, and he and he yeah. also said to me this very interesting thing with sort with a laugh. He said he he said maybe I'm not that imaginative, because <laughs> I really have I'm very literal, so I really have to just be that person as much as I can be because it's hard for me to to just play at it. It's hard for me to imagine it, so I yeah. have to go as far as I can in that direction. And Gangs was the only. He was himself on the weekends because uh, there were a couple of social events on the weekends where he would show up in his in his tweeds, which were his, his own clothes, and he'd have his English accent. But when he's on the set, he was in his Bill the Butcher mode, and he said that was the first time he had ever done that. But oh, he wow. had done it because he didn't want to go home to his two sons, two young sons, <laughs> and be this horrible murdering butcher from <laughs> 19th century New York. Daddy's uh, home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're waking him up at four in the morning with the American flag wrapped around his shoulders. Yeah, quite. I spoke to you um, around the time that uh, Manchester by the Sea was was uh, hitting the BAFTA trail and you were, you picked up the BAFTA and, and the Oscar, obviously, uh, for, for this year as well. And you know, the, the, there was much talk at the time about how you were initially writing that movie and the directing that came along uh, subsequently. After your experience with Margaret, and I don't want to dwell on that, obviously, because I imagine it's still quite painful for you, were you were you reluctant to get back into directing? Were you, or did not, you want to? Not to, especially. To I mean, I was tired after the long, arduous post-production battles with Margaret. Uh, they ended up, it was a more or less happy ending, I think, but yeah. I was very, it was strain, well, it was a big strain, it was stressful, it was, it was demoralizing a some degree, I thought it was the best thing I'd ever done, and to have that much trouble following it, and that much trouble getting it out, and that much trouble getting it distributed properly. Well, yeah. it was never distributed properly, yeah. and it's a miracle that anyone's seen it. So, <laughs> so with all that, I think I was demoralized more. I don't know if it's, maybe it's too fine of a distinction. Uh, I don't think I was discouraged exactly in myself, but I was demoralized about. How much work you can do, and have it, and how much pushback I I got, just trying to make the film the way I wanted to. Of course, yeah. Um, so it was more just a feeling of, of of exhaustion than 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 anything else. But I was always planning to do more films, and I wasn't. I, I didn't quite view it as a as much of as as as, as a personal resurrection to the degree to which some people like to characterize it. <laughs> people love a narrative, Kenny. Yes, I know, <laughs> I, and I'm probably stupid to to be. Uh, foiling that narrative since <laughs> people seem to like it so much it's a good narrative the stick the printed legend yeah there you go <laughs> um, and, uh, what's next for you I don't know I'm working on a few different things and I'm waiting to see which one of them will turn into something wonderful I'm not sure which if any of them it's going to be okay excellent well wish you all the best of that and now while you're here in London are you going to uh, satisfy the playwright half of yourself and get to see some theatre or I'm going to try to anything in, in I'm particular I'm only here for a couple of days so uh, I, I don't know if I'll get the chance but I'm gonna, I, I don't know I have to find a find something to go see <laughs> we're doing a handle opera at the at the uh, Royal Opera House I might go see that go see that I also recommend The Ferryman oh yeah which is the uh, the new play by uh, you know, Jez Butterworth so oh, alright yeah, check it out three hours it's good stuff uh, Brennan, Kenny Lonigan it's been a pleasure thank you so much thank you thank you you know literally everyone in the country is going to be watching Howard's End really because it's on right after Blue Planet 2 ah I'm, honestly I'm not watching that you are a fool and a bounder. <laughs> it is genuinely the greatest thing on TV. Last yeah. week was more trippy than any visual in Doctor Strange. It was a, about the deep. And oh, it was, Doctor Strange is in it. 
Doctor Strange is in it. Yeah, you know what? Okay. If it'll get Chris watching. I'm yeah. fully on board. <laughs> I'm very up for that now, Helen. Yes, thank you very much indeed. Uh, so Howard's End is on BBC One as of this Sunday, November 12th. Time now to discuss this week's movies, this week's big movie releases, and there's only one place to start, the, the one that everyone's going to be flocking to, the one that made me laugh, made me cry... It is, of course, Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. <laughs> no, Classic. Oh, what a misdirect! Oh, out. Boom. Yeah, and that's why we win the big awards. Do we? No, no, we don't. Another fake out. No, <laughs> don't. I mean, I can talk about that if you want. Should we start with it? Do we want to start with it? Right. <laughs> we should get out of the way and then finish on a high note. We're not getting out of the way. This is a movie in which hundreds of people... It's a two-star film in which... Okay, let's get out of the way. Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. This is the story of the creator of Wonder Woman, mm-hmm. um, singular, uh, who was uh, indeed started his career as a professor and started work developing a, um, a lie detector test. That was one of his early... Um, sort of inventions. Uh, the one that he patented isn't the one in general use, but he was there anyway. Um, he married young to a woman who's played in this case by Rebecca Hall. He himself is played by Luke Evans. Um, Maya Hansen uh, for Iron Man 3. Thanks, yeah. That's the only way I can relate to things. Oh my God, Chris, you may have a problem. Um, Someone said that to Tony Stark in Iron Man 2. Look how he turned out. <laughs> anyway, carry on. <laughs> okay, so... Um, uh, he starts off as a psychi- uh, psychologist, um, working as a university professor, but his academic career is stymied by his very unconventional personal life because he and his wife take up with his young assistant, who's played by Bella Heathcote, oh. and they live in a sort of menage a trois, um, eventually. Mm. That's a little bit of a spoiler, but it's also right there in the title, so I'm not going to worry about it. Oh. So the story is really more about their relationship than about him creating Wonder Woman, although that kind of comes into it towards the end. I have to say they've messed a lot with the truth. I have I've read the book on this, uh, mm-hmm. literally a fantastic book um, called "The Secret History of Wonder Woman" by Jill Lepore, which I highly recommend. This is wildly um, uh, changed from that, um, as as the director Angela Robinson herself has admitted. Yeah, I think one of the relatives of um, of Professor Marston yes. actually has done an interview and said disappointed at how much was made up. Yeah, which, because, you know, a lot of the book is is amazing in itself, but maybe mm-hmm. there was just too much story there to kind of get across and they wanted to kind of focus down on, on the, the threesome, if you will. So, you know, there's some good performances, particularly from Rebecca Hall, but there's it's it doesn't feel true okay. because it isn't, I think. And we give it two stars. Two stars. And yep. Nick, you, you I review, that? I write the review and yep. uh, I concur with my own review. But it's two stars. <laughs> um, it's, I concur it's, with your review. It's just got a sort of cheesiness and blandness about it that's quite disappointing, given its subject matter yeah. is is um, is quite radical. And there are people who enjoyed it more than I did. Um, I just thought it was not memorable. I thought it could have been a lot more kind of interesting. Um, there's so, a terrible Nina Simone cover over a sex scene. It's really, really, really bad. Okay, by whom? I don't know. Okay, excellent. So two stars then for Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman, a movie that, if you ask me, maybe needs to go and sit on the lasso of truth. Because then it'll be better. I guess. A little little bit. Okay, so opening in fairly limited release this, this week across the country and in London is a Florida project. It will be expanding into cinemas this uh, over the next couple of weeks. Uh, it's a new film from Sean Baker, who... First onto the scene with Tangerine a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Helen, 
What can you tell us about this? Yeah, this has gone uh, massively up in budget in that it's not shot on an iPhone. Uh, it's shot on actually 35mm and has a movie star in it, um, in Willem Dafoe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he plays the manager of a cheap Florida hotel near uh, Disney's Florida um, Disney World. Uh, and it's mostly not filled with the tourists that you might expect. It's mostly filled with the sort of what they call the hidden homeless. So these are people who can just about afford a room in a cheap motel but that's it. They, they don't have any security. They don't have any apartments. Uh, they have to leave once a month so they don't build up any kind of residence rights oh um, at the hotel. And in this environment, you have a young mother called Hallie, who's uh, played by Bria Vinaite, who um, Baker found on Instagram, amazingly. She's a first-time actor. Phenomenal performance from her. Uh, she's the mother to six- or seven-year-old Mooney, who's played by the astonishing Brooklyn Prince. An amazing performance. Um, and it's basically sort of about their lives. Um, it's, it is largely plotless in that it's mostly about Mooney running wild with her friends during the summer holidays. Um, they sort of, you know... Uh, I mean, they, they literally are unsupervised. They'll they'll p- play pranks. Uh, there's a bit where they're spitting on somebody's car just because it's new and they can. Uh, there's a bit where they, you know, run off to look at some cows in a swamp. There's a bit where they go and explore an, an abandoned house. And, you know, you're always on edge for these kids. You are mm. pers- permanently terrified for them. Uh, and they're having a very nice time and have no worries whatsoever, um, <laughs> except whether they can scam enough money from an ice cream from somebody, you know. Uh, so it's it's that contrast between that childish innocence and that absolute sort of blithe happiness yeah. and, and the very real, very high stakes that, that Hallie and Bobby are aware of and are trying to sort of negotiate a way through. Um, it is genuinely phenomenal. I mean, the, the performances are like nothing you've ever seen. You don't disbelieve these these people for a second. Um, Defoe is heartbreakingly sort of empathetic and, and considerate, but it's but it's really about these, uh, the, these this little family of Hallie and Mooney who are just you know, they're on the verge. Uh, they're on the verge of disaster all of the time and mm. you just desperately want them to get through it. I cannot wait to see it. Uh, I know we gave it five stars. I did, yes. I concur with oh, my you, own review. You concur with your own review? <laughs> I do. Okay. okay, good. So five stars for that. I cannot wait to see it. Um, I haven't seen it yet, but we will be having Sean Baker hopefully on the podcast when he comes into London in the next couple of weeks um, and we fully endorse this movie. Five stars in. Florida Project and it's no spoilers I think to say that the next film is also a five star movie hell of a week at the in the movies if you discount every other movie but these two <laughs> um, and uh, it is of course Paddington 2 in which the little CG bear comes back oh. and uh, gets told to fuck off by a thief <laughs> no that's not what happens that's not what happens <laughs> that's not what happens so he's back Paddington's back he and uh, he's he's better than ever what what happens? <laughs> he's 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 not bad at all. Uh, Aunt Aunt Lucy, his Aunt Lucy, is about to turn one hundred, and obviously she's still in in darkest Peru at the home for retired bears, and, and Paddington needs to send her the perfect gift, and he's he's determined to find something special. Uh, he of course is still voiced by Ben Wishaw, so he finds in his old friend Mister Gruber's antique shop a unique pop-up book of London and he thinks this is perfect, this will give her this, the the feeling of being here in London, how wonderful but it's an antique, it's a one-off it's very expensive so he has to try and save up enough money to buy it but in the meantime a dastardly person steals it <laughs> In related news, there's a dastardly person who lives on Paddington Street who's uh, an actor called Phoenix Buchanan, played by Hugh Grant. The, the two things. I mean, there, there's <laughs> very little between link. them, yeah. but uh, but yeah, the, he he is there. So um, 
Yeah, one thing leads to another. Paddington ends up in prison and befriends, or does he, Knuckles McGinty, played by Brendan Gleeson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it all goes a bit Shawshank Redemption <laughs> uh, without the tunnelling through shit and shiving. And... <laughs> I think that was an original cut. Apparently <laughs> like a much darker That's cut. That's the R-rated, like the fuck-off cut. Um, That's what they got to call it. Paddington <laughs> 2, the fuck-off cut. <laughs> It's this such, is, this, we've earned our explicit uh, really warning have. this month, this week. Yeah. Sorry about that, everybody. And, and you know what? It's ironic that we're saying any of this because it is the nicest <laughs> film. It's lovely in ages. It's a film about a, a bear wanting to buy someone a present, and that's yeah. that's kind of it. And yeah. the whole movie, he's just trying to buy a gift for somebody, and it's um, it's so sweet. And I mean, the first film was a big success, and with the sequel, there was probably a bit of temptation to do something spectacular, get out of London, take him to another country, or, yeah. you know take them to space or something, but they, they keep it in London and they keep it at the same kind of scale. Yeah. And and, and they don't just repeat the same sort of beats. You know, it's not no. Mr. Brown suddenly decides he doesn't like him again after all or and he has to win him over again, which I think a lot of sequels also do. There are some brilliant kind of recurring, they, they go back to some of the gags from the original. Simon Farnaby's uh, security guard character comes back. I don't think that's a spoiler. Uh, he's one of my favourite things yes. about this series. Um but it's 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 great. It builds on everything the first film did. I actually think it's better. It is it is a phenomenal phenomenal film. It is guaranteed. Like even if you think I am not interested in a film about a small bear, that is ridiculous. It it is sweet without being schmaltzy, and I defy you not to be charmed by it. I re- like I can't imagine who isn't going to like Paddington and Paddington Two. I, I don't understand those yeah. people. I mean, co- comedies these days, there's a lot of talk about, you know, this new type of improv comedy where the kind of Judd Apatow thing of everyone getting together. But everything in padding, everything in this movie, the jokes and the set pieces are so well written and so well executed. And the precision of the jokes, there's a set piece where he's trying to cut somebody's hair. He gets a job as a barber. We're in a barber shop. And it obviously goes massively wrong. But that sequence just had me in hysterics. <laughs> it's so brilliantly executed. Mm. Um, yeah, because there's so many ways it could go wrong. What's impressive is he manages to have all of them happen. All of them. Which is, <laughs> yeah. which is beautifully done. Yeah, it's, there's a real kind of Buster Keaton, Chaplin, mm, those yeah. kind of silent comedy. There's those, they kind of the set pieces that just build and build. Yeah. Full credit, I think, goes to uh, the director and co-writer of the movie, Paul King, returning from the first film. And, you know, I think his confidence clearly increased at the first film and I think you can see that here mm. this for me this is this is every bit as good as the first movie it may be better uh, for me I found it more emotional than the first movie and the, the first movie was a hugely pleasant surprise to me uh, I went in you're talking about everything that could go wrong in the Paddington cuts someone's hair section and I thought when I went when I went to see the first movie I thought everything can go wrong with this movie and I wasn't looking forward to it and I probably said this on the podcast before, but I was sat down and I just I I didn't want to be there. If I'm honest, I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be watching this stupid movie about a CG bear that the trailer had come out and hadn't looked that great and creepy Paddington had been a whole thing. And and within the first thirty seconds, it charmed me. And within the first thirty seconds, I I thought, oh, hang on a second, they they know what they're doing. They've got me. And it's an amazing film. And the confidence really increases in this movie. And it's funnier than the first movie. Hmm. Uh, it's more emotional than the first movie. The end of this destroyed me. Absolutely yeah. destroyed me. Uh, but in a nice way. It's not like an Paddington <laughs> gets his head cut off way. This this will leave Spoiler. you a wreck, but in a lovely way. I'm not Spoiler, say no else. headless bears. No headless bears in this one. It is beautifully, beautifully put together. Wonderfully acted. You will fall in love with the bear. You will love marmalade sandwiches if you don't already. Uh, great performance from everybody. Hugh Grant 
is so funny in this. So good. So is uh, Brenton Gleeson. Nobody is wasted, uh, literally and figuratively. It is fantastic. And the message of the movie about tolerance and politeness and heart and uh, looking for the good in people. And being nice to people and how that can change the world. Mm. I think it was that 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 kind of got me. Because... You know, everything going on in the world today, mm. not many people being nice to each other, but the genuine sweetness of that bear and how it affects everyone else and how there's a ripple effect through all the other characters just coming mm. from him. It's so great. Yeah. Loved it. It's a phenomenal film. Um, I absolutely loved it. I think we all did. Yeah. Five stars for Paddington 2. And we are going to be discussing it in a little bit more detail uh, because some bears just deserve their own spoiler special. And uh, we're going to be doing that right after this. We record this show. We're going to have a Paddington 2 spoiler special. It's going to be up on Monday, November the 13th. And I sat down uh, last week with the director, Paul King, and the co-writer, Simon Farnaby, uh, to go through all the film's revelations. And there are quite a lot of revelations in this one. It's not like mm. a Marvel movie, <laughs> you know, but it's, there's still quite a lot to talk about. So I'm really looking forward to doing that. Also out this week, we have Only the Brave, which is a true-life firefighting drama with an all-star cast, including Josh Brolin, uh, Jeff Bridges, Miles Teller, and Jennifer Connelly. We gave that just two stars, I'm afraid. And uh, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by the stars of Mudbound, uh, Garrett Hedlund and Jason Mitchell. And, uh, And the star, or is he? of Justice League, Mr. Henry Cavill, Superman himself. But Superman's not in this film. I hear you cry. And but in Superman's fact, not in this film. You will hear us cry that to Henry Cavill. And it's his answer may shock you. Does he not answer it? He doesn't answer it. So, <laughs> so, so look out for that, that must-listen interview next week, Henry Cavill, uh, on the podcast. That is it. Until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from Nick DeSemlian. Goodbye. It is goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to make some marmalade sandwiches with limbus bread. Mmm. Tasty. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. <laughs>